Amen. Good morning. It's great to be with you. I've been looking forward to being here at Grace Fellowship for some time and have really enjoyed getting to know your pastor over the past uh, year or so and um, love getting to work with Jonathan Gill and serve students at uh, Reformation Bible College. So one of the things that I appreciate about Grace Fellowship is the commitment to expository preaching. So if you're visiting here today and you're looking for a church home, my encouragement to you would be to find a church that preaches expositionally through books of the Bible, uh, just like happens here at Grace Fellowship. And so um, I have preached, as, as Jonathan said, for a lot of different pastors. I get to pinch hit for them when they're away, just like I'm doing this morning. But this is the first time in over 30-something years that a pastor has invited me to step into a series that he's in the middle of. Usually they'll invite me and they'll say, preach on whatever you want. I'm doing a series through this book, but you know, so don't preach there, but preach anywhere else you want. Pastor Tim actually invited me to come and be a part of the series that he has started here in Mark's Gospel. So if you have a copy of the scriptures today, if you would Open it up or turn it on and turn to or click or swipe to uh, Mark chapter 2. You have uh, persevered through Mark chapter 1 together. I've listened to several of Pastor Tim's sermons on the first chapter. Um, I do want to bring you greetings from Reformation Bible College and from our president, Dr. Stephen Nichols. And grateful again for this church because there are probably as many RBC students attending Grace Fellowship as any other church in Central Florida. So thank you for your shepherding them, your watch care over them, your discipling of them, and uh, appreciate them having a place where they can come and be a part of, uh, of, of local church ministry. So grateful for Grace Fellowship to that end. So Mark chapter two, have you found it? I want to begin reading in verse one. We'll read the first uh, 12 verses of this chapter. When he returned to Capernaum, that is, when, when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray together one more time. 
Spirit of the living God who inspired these words from Mark's pen, I pray that you would direct our thoughts today, that you would guide us into truth, that you would guard us from error, and that you would speak to our hearts from this passage today. We need your help, and we ask that um, you who inspired these words would be our teacher today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to take just a minute and kind of uh, do a flyover of chapter 1 just to kind of give the context. Most of you have been camping out in Mark chapter 1 with Pastor Tim through this series. But in case you have not, um, just to give you a flavor of the ministry of Jesus, basically he has been, he's up in Galilee, which is the northern part of uh, modern-day Israel, up near the Sea of Galilee. And he's been doing what we would call itinerant or Uh, Back where I come from, circuit riding, uh, preaching, going from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, and teaching and preaching uh, in the the surrounding towns in the synagogue. And it got to the point where in those local synagogues, the crowds just got too large for those synagogues to hold. And so Jesus kind of moved out to the countryside and began preaching and teaching, and they would come out uh, into the country and gather there, and he would teach them. Uh, there. The message that he preached we find in chapter uh, 1 verse 15 when Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel. That was the message that Jesus was preaching. The time is fulfilled. The time has finally come. All of these centuries that Israel had been waiting for their Messiah that time had been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come Uh, And so now the responsibility that is yours is to repent and believe, to turn from your sin and to place your faith in, Jesus could say, the one standing before you uh, right now, the Lord Jesus himself. We have talked about, or Pastor Tim has talked about the the audience, uh, the crowds that gathered around him. In Mark chapter 1, we see in verse 28 that his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We see in verse 33, the whole city was gathered together at the door when they were at uh, uh, the home of Peter and Andrew there in chapter 1. At the end of the chapter, we see that um, he could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Pastor Tim did a great job of mentioning that, that the size of the crowd did not measure the success of his ministry. Many in the crowd were just curious. Many in the crowd had just uh, were, were there for what they could get, whether it was healing or whether it was deliverance from demons. Uh, they weren't there necessarily pursuing the truth. They weren't necessarily there uh, seeking out his claims to be the Messiah and to be the Savior. Uh, so the size of the crowd is not the measure of success of Jesus' ministry or really of anyone's ministry because as we keep reading through Mark, we see that it's not too long before the crowds go away. And uh, he begins the road towards Jerusalem and the road towards the cross. So he's doing this itinerant preaching. He is going around to the towns up in Galilee and even down in Judea to a, to a degree. But his base of operations is Capernaum. Capernaum is a city right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it seems that there is a home in Capernaum that he's been allowed to kind of use as a base of operations. Many Bible scholars uh, believe, and I agree with them, that this home was probably the home of Peter and Andrew. We've already seen 
a healing take place in that home as Peter's mother-in-law had a fever that Jesus healed in chapter 1. I believe that this is probably the home that is spoken of here in the passage that we just read. When he came back to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. I don't believe Jesus was a property owner himself. I don't believe he had his own home. I don't believe the Son of Man had a place to lay his head. So this is kind of a borrowed headquarters that he's using to, to have a place to come back and to uh, regroup, replan, and, and uh, relaunch as he would do this itinerant preaching. Peter and Andrew's home was probably typical of any home in that time. It had what we might call today a, a great room or a large room. Sometimes homes were only one room. That room would include the living area, the kitchen area, the sleeping area. This was probably because it was Peter and Andrew and Peter's mother-in-law. It probably had some secondary rooms to this home, but there was one large room, and it's in that large room that the people are gathered to hear Jesus teach and to hear him preach. This home, like many homes of that day, also had an exterior set of stairs, and on the roof of that home, there was like a, a patio or a terrace, or a deck. And so the, the roof of this home would have beams, much like these beams here, and then on top of those beams would be uh, some kind of thatch, and then on top of that thatch would be like adobe mud that they would use to be able to handle the heat of the, uh, of the climate. And then on top of that mud, they would place tiles that would be the floor of that terrace, so in the cool of the evening, when the evening breeze is blowing, they could go up there and sit outside and enjoy a meal or enjoy company or uh, just have times of, uh, of togetherness and community up there on the, on the roof. And so this, we step into this story. There, there's so many times in Mark's gospel, as you're reading through, I don't know about you, but I think, man, what, what would it have been like to be there in that moment? to see that episode in Jesus' life. And this chapter, or this passage that we've read today, for me at least, is one of those. What would it have been like to have been there? They're, they're here at what we believe was probably Peter's house. It is standing room only. And um, the, people are seated, people are standing, uh, people are crammed in here, uh, all the way to the door and even out the door probably sitting in the window seals, probably peeking in if there are other rooms, peeking in from those other rooms, or if they can't see, if they're not in the line of sight, then probably at least around the corner listening. Outside in the front, if there's a courtyard or if that house uh, butts up against the street, they're, they're pressing in to hear the Lord Jesus as he's teaching. It is, it is standing room only. There's no handicapped seating, so this guy had to find another way in. And there's no social distancing going on. Uh, it is crammed full here in this house to hear Jesus preach. And he is uh, presenting the sermon to them. And all of a sudden, as they are listening, they hear a noise. Not only do they hear a noise, but they begin to see debris falling from the ceiling. Can you imagine how distracting that must have been to the preacher? How distracting it must have been to the audience? Probably much more distracting to the audience than it was to the preacher. I remember one time I was uh, visiting a church that was meeting in a movie theater. And um, it had the, you know, the stadium seating like many movie theaters do. And the pastor was down in front there in front of the screen. And he was preaching. 
And in the middle of his sermon, unknown to him, somehow, some way, the screen came on. And the screen started showing a trailer of a movie, Bonnie and Clyde. And so he's there preaching, and in the background, there are machine guns and people getting killed and car chases and all this stuff. He was not distracted at all. We were very distracted. So I can imagine at this moment, Jesus is not bothered and not distracted at all. He knows exactly what's happening and what's about to happen. But he is, um, uh, can't help but notice that those in his audience are beginning to be distracted. You would be distracted. I would be distracted if all of a sudden this roof started coming off that we're gathered under this morning. That's exactly what happened here. And so uh, there's a lot that Mark says that, uh, uh, but there's a lot that he doesn't say. There's some dialogue that you have to kind of connect the dots and figure out, okay, how did, how did um, this happen? How did they get to the roof? How did they decide that they're going to let this guy down? You, you don't want to speculate, but you know that the Bible says they came to the door, they couldn't get in. The crowd was too thick. It, it was too thick for them to even politely step aside and create a path. It was just too jam-packed for that to happen. And so even though the crowd may have wanted to let them in, it just physically wasn't possible. So these guys could have said, well, we gave it our best shot. Let's go home. We'll try again another day. But they didn't do that. And I just, I can just imagine the four of them probably huddled over here with or without the paralytic that's on this stretcher, and they're trying to come up with a game plan. And they're looking, and they said, you know, if we look over the heads of everybody, we can see where he is in the house. We can see that about two-thirds back or all the way back, he's back there. We see him teaching. If we could, there's no way to get to him any other way from around the side. But I wonder if we could go up and figure out a way to, to lower him down. They're like, no, you can't lower him down. There's a roof up there. Yeah, there's a roof up there, but it doesn't have to be. What are you talking about? We can't rip the roof off. Why can't we rip the roof off? Well, okay, let's go give it a shot. So they go, they carry him up these uh, external stairs. They go to the roof. They begin to remove the tiles. They begin to dig through that mud. They begin to remove the thatch. I don't know if they made a hole big enough for the, for the pallet to, to go down flat or if they had to strap this guy on and they lowered him uh, vertically. We don't, we don't know, but we know that they made a hole and they were able to lower him down through the roof in front of Jesus. And Jesus looking up, that's, where, that's one of the things that Mark doesn't talk about that I'm really curious about is, was there any conversation between Jesus and these guys? He looks up, they're looking down at him, he's looking up at them, they've lowered this guy down, is there any dialogue? Mark doesn't say, we don't know. I'm curious to know if there was. But the Bible says that Jesus, seeing their faith, their being plural, um, said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, growing up, every time I've heard this passage preached on, the focus of the passage has always been these four guys. But I just want to encourage you that if you're reading through the Bible and you come to a passage and your focus of the passage is on some human, you're probably misreading the passage. <laughs> In this passage, the focus is not these four guys. As Pastor Tim likes to say, we'll get to them in a minute, but that's not the focus of this passage now. 
The focus is the Lord Jesus and his authority to forgive sins. So in your outline, you see there's one central theme to this passage. That one central theme is that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins. And so he says to this young man on this stretcher, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And seated somewhere in that room, maybe up front in the seat of honor, maybe in the back, Uh, so that they can oversee and watch people's reaction to this Galilean teacher, are the scribes. Now, here in this passage that we just read is the first of five confrontations that the scribes are going to have with Jesus between this passage and the very next chapter. Five different times between here and chapter 3, verse 6, that the scribes are going to be coming at him and accusing him and confronting him and opposing him time after time after time. So it's kind of like the honeymoon is over with all these crowds gathering. The scribes have kind of had their fill of it, and now they're going to begin to oppose Jesus even publicly for some of the things that he and his disciples are doing. They don't say anything, but Jesus, being the Son of God, knows their heart, knows what they're thinking, and he calls them out. He says, why are you guys thinking, what were they thinking? Well, they're thinking, why is this guy talking like this? Because this is blasphemy, because only God can forgive sins. And he's saying to this paralytic fella, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't have the right to do that. Not only does he not have the right, but it's blasphemy that he would say that, because only God can forgive sin. Jesus knew all of this is going on in their mind, and he calls them out. He says, why are you saying this in your mind? Why are you thinking this in your heart? Um, Let me ask you a question, Jesus says. Which is easier to do? Is it easier for me to stand here and to say to this guy, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier for me to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk? Think about that question. Don't answer it yet. Because I think if we answer too quickly, we may answer incorrectly. But um, he says, but here's what I'm going to do. So that you'll know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, he turns to this fellow and he says, rise up, take up your bed, and go home. (laughs) And the guy does immediately, as Mark likes to use that word so often, immediately. He gets up, rolls up that mat like a yoga mat, and walks right out the door. This time they do create a path for him. And they are amazed. Some of your Bibles say they are astounded. And they are giving glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So let's walk through this passage today. I want you to see one central theme. I want you to see two urgent needs. I want you to see three misunderstandings about Jesus. I want you to see four faithful friends, and I want to give you five encouragements from this passage. So let's walk through that together. The central theme here of this passage is not evangelism. It's not missions. It's not soul winning. It is that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins. That's what, that's the the case that Mark has been building in his gospel all through the first chapter. When God said to Jesus, the heavens parted at his baptism, and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, at that moment, he is saying, Jesus has authority as the son of God. When he came to Peter and Andrew and James and John and said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, in, I think it's verse 17, 
uh, he was showing, I have the authority for you to align and lead your life with me and with my mission. The Bible says in several times in verse 22 and 27 in chapter 1 that Jesus was teaching with authority. It was not like they were used to because this guy is teaching with authority. In uh, the first chapter, we see three different times when he has authority over demons. We see a couple of times when he has authority over disease. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals a leper. Um, there's another instance of, of healing in chapter 1. So he has healing over disease, he has healing over the demons, he has, healing in, or he has authority over the demons, authority over um, uh, the disease, he has authority in his teaching, he has authority as the Son of God, he has authority to call these men to allegiance. And here we come to chapter 2, and we see that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins. As you keep studying through Mark, you're going to come to chapter 4 and see that he has authority over the wind and the waves and nature. You come to chapter 5 and you're going to see that he has authority over death itself as he raises a little girl from the dead. The theme of this passage is that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sin. I want you to see two urgent needs as we think through this passage today. There is the physical need of this paralytic. He is crippled by paralysis. We don't know whether he's a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. Usually people are not born paralyzed. They, they become paralyzed because of some accident or because of some injury. We don't know the details behind this guy's backstory. But these four men bring the paralytic to Jesus because they saw the physical. But Jesus saw the spiritual. They saw the external Jesus saw the internal. They saw the temporal. Jesus saw the eternal need that this man had. There was a physical need and there was a spiritual need. Both of them were urgent needs. These men most likely were motivated by this man's physical need that he was paralyzed. And we as believers and we as the church do not need to ignore the physical needs of those around us. There are true physical needs that we are called to minister to in our community where God plants us and places us. Now, we don't want to do that uh, at the exclusion of the gospel and at the exclusion of speaking to man's spiritual need of needing forgiveness. But uh, And sometimes we do that. Sometimes we are focused on the physical, and we never get to the gospel. We call this ministry. It's maybe more philanthropy, <laughs> uh, but we call it ministry when we're meeting physical needs, but we never get to the gospel. I spoke to a missionary one time who was serving in Belarus and was asking about his ministry, and he said, well, yeah, he said, you know, alcoholism is such a huge problem in Belarus that, that our key strategy is we are starting AA groups around the country. And, and trying to get people plugged into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, uh, well, that's, that's interesting, that's great. I said, how do you connect them to a local church? Um, how do you present the gospel to them? He said, well, we don't really present the gospel. AA has you know, a higher power element to it, but we don't really present the gospel from an evangelism standpoint, and we don't really try to connect them with the local church because the alcoholism is such a problem, that's where we're really trying to zero in. 
And I thought, well, as honorable as it is to try to help people with their alcoholism, really all this guy's doing is sending people to hell sober. Because it's not um, philanthropic work that changes a person's heart and life. And there are physical needs that need to be met, but if we never get to the gospel, we can't say that we're ever really doing gospel ministry with people. So we've got to be careful. There were two urgent needs here. Jesus is addressing both of them. There's also um, the idea that, you know what, God's just called us to preach the gospel. We're not worried about poverty. We're not worried about clean water. We're not worried about trafficking. We're not worried about orphans. We're not worried about all those things. Our, go, our message, our mission is to preach the gospel. That's all we're trying to focus on. If we do that well, the rest will take care of itself. That wasn't the pattern of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus realized there were two urgent needs here, and he addressed both of these needs. But the priority for him was the gospel. The priority was this man's greatest need was not his legs, it was his heart. It was that he needed to have his sins forgiven. This paralytic that they brought to him was unable to do anything, and Jesus pardons him. Son, your sins are forgiven. What separates, sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what condemns us before God. Sin is what brings the wrath of God upon us. The fact is we're all sinners. We universally, all mankind who are on the planet today, all humans who live today and have ever lived, live under this curse of being totally corrupted by our sin. There's no part of my being, my mind, my will, my emotions, even my physical body, that is unaffected by sin. Sin totally corrupts, totally depraves, if you will, who we are. We are sinners by birth, by nature, by choice, and by deed. And that is our greatest need is for forgiveness. And that's the greatest need of every person in this room this morning. It's the greatest need of everybody sitting in this house in Capernaum in Mark chapter 2. And there's nothing more abhorrent to God than sin. One sin is enough to damn us to hell forever. The, the, uh, the book of James says that uh, if uh, there are ten commandments, this is a Wooten paraphrase, there are ten commandments, and if you're guilty of only breaking one, then you're guilty of breaking the entire law. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, think of it this way. Think of the Ten Commandments as, as a ten-link chain, and you're holding on to that chain over a deep precipice. How many of those links have to break before you fall? All ten of them? No. You don't have to break all ten of the Ten Commandments to be guilty before God. You only have to bring, break one of them to be guilty before God. And Jesus knew that this man's greatest problem, and he knows that our greatest problem, is that we need forgiveness of sin. And if forgiveness is our greatest need, then it's also our greatest news, because Jesus has come to forgive sin. It's man's greatest need. There were... In that room, most likely, this room is jam-packed, and it was, it's very likely that in that room that day, there were folks there with tremendous financial need. There may have been folks there that day with marital need, with parental needs. Maybe those that were struggling with their job, or they didn't have a job, or they needed a job. Maybe there was a relationship that was torn or broken that 
that folks said, this is, this is a tremendous need in my life. There were those, no doubt, the Bible indicates, that were there with medical needs and physical needs. But Jesus realized that the greatest need that this man has was, was, had nothing to do with his paralysis, other than the fact that disease and those kind of things are a result of, of sin entering the world. But the greatest need he had was the forgiveness of his sin. This word forgiveness carries the idea of being carried away, being removed, gone. So when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, your sins are carried away. They are removed. They're gone. Son, your sins are forgiven. This idea of forgiveness is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from other world religions that there's nothing that this man could do to earn or accomplish his forgiveness and yet here Jesus comes and grants him pardon and gives him forgiveness this forgiveness is necessary for all of us Jesus said unless you repent you'll all likewise perish repent of what repent of your sins unless there is forgiveness of sins we are all doomed and damned in our sin it is necessary Sin is not what, well, listen to me, sin is not what sends us to hell. Unforgiven sin is what sends us to hell. And this man needed to have his sins forgiven. Forgiveness is necessary, but it's also conditional. Jesus came preaching in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He came preaching saying, repent and believe in the gospel. Forgiveness is conditional. It only comes to those who repent of their sins and trust Christ as their savior there's a lot that mark doesn't say in this passage but one conclusion we can draw is that this paralytic that day that moment turned from his sins and placed his faith in christ that's the only time forgiveness ever comes is when that happens when when people repent and believe forgiveness is instantaneous that moment there was nothing left for him to do there was no class he had to attend there was nothing he had to give. There was nothing he could accomplish. Immediately, when Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven, that forgiveness was instantaneous. And it was complete. Your sins are forgiven, plural. Your past sins that you've committed, the present sins that are in your life, and the sins that you're going to commit in the future. I, my forgiveness of you is complete. There is no part of our sinful nature that's not covered by the blood of Jesus when Jesus grants forgiveness. And as we've mentioned, it's free. It's free. There was nothing he could do to accomplish it, just like the thief on the cross. His forgiveness was free. Well, then these scribes come into the story. And I want you to see what I've called three misunderstandings about Jesus. It really is... Um, one, understanding about Jesus, and two, misunderstanding about Jesus. Let me share your, their theology. Their theology was this. Only God can forgive sin. And that's good theology. That part of their theology was correct. Where they were messing up was that this one who was teaching, this one who was standing in front of them, is God. <laughs> so, only God can forgive sins, yes, but they didn't connect the dot that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God himself. And they even say their heresy out loud. No one can forgive uh, sin but God. This man is blaspheming. 
So there is, there is the, the incorrect view of Jesus. There is the heresy that this man, Jesus, is not God. There's conclusion that he's blaspheming. And in their law, the sentence for blaspheming was stoning. And so what they're really saying is, what we ought to do, young man, is drag you out of here and stone you to death. Because what you're saying about who you are in our book is blasphemy and is deserving of stoning. But I want you to see in this passage that Jesus, uh, there were misunderstandings about Jesus, but some things about Jesus I want you to see. One is that Jesus points out he has the ability to forgive sin. Remember what he said? Which is easier? So let's think about that question. Which is easier? Would it, be, would it be easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. Bless you. Carry them out. <laughs> would that have been easier? Or would it have been easier to say, all right, you've been crippled by paralysis, but I'm telling you to stand up, roll up your mat, and walk out of here on your own two feet. Now, at first glance, as we think about those two options... Well, it seems like it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven because who would know? We can't see in his heart. We can't see the forgiveness of sins. But we can see whether he stands up on his own feet. We can see whether he rolls up his mat and walks out of the room. We could see that. So initially we would think, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven and then have his buddies carry him out on his stretcher. But the point that Jesus is making is the point that the scribes are making. Only God can forgive sin. And so what he's saying is, for me to be able to say that means that I have to be able to, I have, to have the ability to forgive sins. And he does. And so he, he shows them, I'm going to do both. <laughs> I'm going to forgive this man's sins, but I'm also going to heal him of his paralysis. Jesus has the ability to forgive sin. Jesus also has the authority to forgive sins. We see several things in this passage that speak to his authority. One is he could read their hearts and minds, indicating that he was God. He could heal their diseases, indicating that he had divine authority over disease. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. He says, but so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. Son of Man was a a favorite term that Jesus used for himself. He used it 14 times in the 16 chapters of Mark. It deals with the incarnation to a degree. It deals with his humanity, but more importantly, and the scribes knew this, it goes back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Messiah was called the Son of Man. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying when he called himself the Son of Man. He was claiming to be the Messiah, and these scribes knew that, and it stuck in their craw. It really irritated them that he would make that claim. And he had the authority to forgive sins. But think about this with me. Look, not only did Jesus have the ability to forgive sins, and not only did he have the authority to forgive sins, but he had the desire to forgive sins. Aren't you glad that Jesus wants to forgive our sins? Let me share with you some verses that, that God, how God describes himself in, in the scriptures. So I think these may be on the screen, but look in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. 
Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Oops, I just pulled my bookmark out, so let me find Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him. This is, this is when God is giving the Ten Commandments in the stone tablets to Moses. And Moses had already asked him, can I see your glory? And, and God said, yeah, you can't see it fully, but I, I, as I pass by, I'll let you see the afterburners of my glory, if you will. And so in verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Don't, don't get the idea that God is just some kind of doting grandfather with a long gray beard sitting in a rocking chair on heaven's front porch. And when we come to appear before him, He's like, yeah, I know that you were a sinner, but hey, you old knucklehead. And he gives us a noogie on the head and says, come on in. No, God continues to be a just and holy God. If God were ever to, to dismiss one half of one sin, he would cease to be a holy God. It's not that God compromises or overlooks our sin. It's that he drills right through the middle of our sin and says, your son, your sins are forgiven. You're forgiven. Look at uh, Psalm chapter 86. The 86th Psalm and verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding. You hear that word? Abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. A few Psalms later in the Psalm that we read this morning in our corporate reading. Psalm 130, verse 4. Let me read verse 3 to you and then I'll read verse 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And then verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And down in verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will, verse 8 says, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God desires. Not only does Jesus have the ability to forgive sin and the authority to forgive sin, he has the desire to forgive sin. In fact, look in First uh, John chapter 1, verse 9. You see this verse on the screen. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from, what does it say? All unrighteousness. God's desire is to forgive sin. Notice how he speaks to this paralytic. He says, son, <laughs> I don't know about you, but it just seems like a term of endearment. This was not a child. Every indication was that this was a, a young man or, or uh, not a child or a teenager. Um, he's spoken of as uh, a man in this passage. And Jesus looks at him. We don't know if he was uh, younger than Jesus, older than Jesus, Jesus' age. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. A term of endearment, a family term. And I'll tell you, none of us get into the family of God unless we've been born again and adopted into God's forever family. We are the children of God. And so Jesus has, uh, has the authority to forgive sin, the ability to forgive sin, and the desire to forgive sin. I'm so, so thrilled to be able to stand here today and tell you 
that Jesus has forgiven my sin. And I'm so excited to tell you, based on the authority of the Word of God, that if you'll repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, then He'll forgive you of your sin as well. Well, we've seen one central theme. We've seen two urgent needs. We've seen three misunderstandings about Jesus. I want to share with you about four, uh, these four faithful friends. These four faithful friends that we see here in this passage. This is not the focus of the passage, but it's, it's not incidental to the passage as well. There is, the, these four men are bringing their friend to Jesus. And I can tell you, in my life, there's been no greater privilege that I've ever experienced as a Christian than to have the privilege of bringing someone to Christ, to being a soul winner, to leading someone to Jesus. Um, that's what Jesus called his followers to do in chapter 1, verse 17. Follow me, he said, and I'll make you fishers of men. And here were these four faithful friends. Let me share with you some character traits of these men. One is they were... Um, compassionate. They were compassionate. They cared about this friend. They cared to do what had to be done to get him to Jesus. God, give us a compassion for those that are without Christ. Give us a love for the lost. These men were compassionate, and they were creative. I mean, imagine what Peter's thinking. If this was indeed Peter's house, which makes this story all the sweeter, right, from what we know about Peter, Peter's probably in the room, and he's probably at a prominent place in the room where everybody can see him and knows that, hey, you know what? This teacher that you're listening to is my house. It's my guy, and, you know, I'm one of his disciples. I'm one of the first ones he called, and so, you know, here I am. I'm kind of the chief of staff for this guy, and, um, and so Peter's there. Everybody can see him just like they can see Jesus, and all of a sudden the roof starts coming apart of Peter's house. And, and the, Mark doesn't say what Peter's reaction was. Uh, he doesn't say whether he scooted out and tried to figure out how to get up there to stop him. It, it just doesn't say. But surely Peter is kind of amazed that these guys are starting to take his roof apart piece by piece to let this guy down. They were creative in how they brought this man to Jesus. They were courageous. Or courageous. They, they did this not knowing what Jesus' reaction was going to be, not knowing what the scribes were going to think, not knowing what the crowd was going to think. Was somebody going to try to stop them? They didn't know, but they were bold in their efforts. They're courageous. They were committed and persistent. Hey, we can't get in the front door. It doesn't look like we can get around any other way. Uh, we could tear a hole in the roof, and um, uh, their persistence paid off. They were, if you will, collaborative, working together, to accomplish this purpose, just as God's called us as a church to work together to reach the lost. And most significantly, I think, they were confident because the text says when Jesus saw their faith, it wasn't when Jesus saw how creative they were or how compassionate they were or how committed they were, but when Jesus saw their faith, he turned to the paralytic and said, son, your sins are forgiven. All right, let me let me close our time together today by giving you five encouragements from this text, and then we'll be done. The first encouragement is this. If you have not come to know the forgiveness of your sins, then on the authority of the Word of God, and as a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you today, in this place, in this hour, right now, to turn from your sin and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you will, I promise you three things will happen. One is, 
your sins will be carried away. They'll be removed. They'll be gone. Your sins will be forgiven. Number two, he'll make you a child of God. And number three, he'll prepare a home for you in heaven so that when you die or when he comes back, you'll spend eternity with him. If you today will repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, I promise you, your sins will be forgiven. You show me any time, anywhere in the scripture where somebody truly repented of their sins and Jesus refused to forgive them, and I will close my Bible and never preach again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, I invite you to turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. A second encouragement is that Mark's theme through all of this, chapter 1 and now into chapter 2, is that we would recognize and submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over again in his teaching, in his authority over demons, in his authority over disease, and now his authority to forgive sin, Jesus is king. And we need to bow and submit that he is the one writing the stories of our lives, and we need to kneel before him and submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. A third encouragement. Never lose faith in Jesus's, Jesus's, in Jesus's authority, ability, and desire to forgive sin. You say, well, yeah. But you know what? I think we do sometimes. I think there are times when we forget or we lose faith in Jesus' ability to forgive sins. You say, why would you say that? I think it's, it's one of the reasons we don't more often bring people to Jesus. It's because do we really believe that, if the, do we really believe that Jesus could forgive this guy? Do we really believe that forgiveness is available to this guy? We can't lose faith in the fact that Jesus has the authority, ability, and desire to forgive sin. We lose, we lose faith in his ability to forgive sin because we're not bringing people to Jesus. And the reason we're not bringing people to Jesus is because we've lost faith in his ability to forgive sin. If I'm bringing people to Christ and seeing them be saved, seeing their conversion, then that's just going to reinforce in my heart, Jesus is the forgiver of sins. And it's going to make me want to witness more often. Uh, if I'm not being a faithful witness, then I'm not seeing his forgiveness of sin, and it makes me kind of wonder if he really still is in that business or not. So don't lose faith in the reality that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And so my fourth encouragement is tied to that. Let's be bringing others to Jesus so that they can find forgiveness and salvation. Let's invite people to the cross. Let's bring people to the cross. Let's be creative and compassionate and committed as these four faithful friends were in bringing people to Jesus so that they can know his forgiveness and his salvation. And then the fifth encouragement I would give you, I, I draw from verse 12, this last verse in our passage. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. My encouragement to you is never stop 
being amazed at God's amazing grace. Some of your Bibles, as I pointed out, use the word astounded. They were astounded by this. They were amazed by this. And their response was to give glory to God. They're watching this guy get up off his pallet, roll it up, tuck it under his arm, and now they begin to make a path for him to leave. I don't know if it was stunned silence. I don't know if it was cheers or applause. We don't know. Mark doesn't say as he walked out that door. But what we do know is they were amazed. They were astounded. And they gave glory to God. We've never seen anything like this. It was many moons ago when I was just an 11-year-old boy that I turned from my sins, put my faith in Jesus Christ. My sins were forgiven. And I haven't gotten over it yet. And I pray that I never will. I pray that God would continue to give me that sense of awe, that sense of wonder, that astonishment, that amazement that Jesus Christ is the forgiver of sins. May we never get over it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have the authority as the Son of God to forgive sin. We thank you that you have the ability to forgive sin. And we praise you today that you have the desire to forgive our sins. Thank you, Lord, for forgiveness of sins in my life. And I pray for those here, to, here today that are without Christ, that today might be the day that they say an everlasting yes to Jesus and find forgiveness in him. And for the rest of us, may we have confident faith in your ability to forgive sin. May it motivate us to be soul winners. And may we never get over it. May every day be filled with awe and wonder at your ability to forgive our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.